had a little note scribbled on a piece of paper uh, just handed to me saying at least we won our bowl game. Well, that may be true, uh, but you lose to us every year. But that's okay, Steve Brogdon, and uh, we'll, we'll settle that later on. As we come this morning, we are returning to Titus, and we're returning to the first verse, four verses of Titus, and we're going to walk through these verses that tell us that the truth of God's Word, the truth of the Gospel, leads the Christian to godliness, the truth that leads to godliness. Last week we laid a foundation by which to read, understand, and study the book of Titus. We said that indeed the belief that we have within the gospel should inform every aspect of our behavior. Our belief should inform our behavior. And we laid out an overarching theme throughout the context of this book and said, listen, when you're reading, studying, and applying this content to your life, you should do it in this way. You should understand that it is the life and the witness of God's children that commends or condemns the truthfulness of the transformational work of the gospel in our culture. Our lives are the examples by which the culture either receives or rejects the gospel because it is our lives that testify to the truthfulness of the transforming nature and power of the gospel. In other words... We have received the words of truth that bring salvation to our souls, but it shouldn't just stay within us. It should work itself out within the context of our daily lives. It should work itself out in the midst of all my conversation and all in the midst of all my relationships. It should work itself out. Indeed, when people in our culture who are unbelievers come into contact with us, it should cause them to pause for just a second and ponder the question, what in the world is different? about their life in fact a good way to say that is this way we ought to live our lives in such a way that when people who don't know god know but know us come to know us they would want to know god we should live our lives in such a way that those who know you but don't know god would come to know god because of knowing you think about that for a second Do those who know you but don't know God come to know God because they know you? That should be the testimony of every Christian. That's what Paul is writing in this letter. That's what he's exhorting us to within this text. Paul wants to exhort God's children, tempted as we are to live with one foot in the world and one foot in God's kingdom, tempted as we are to be conformed to the thinking, the behavior, and the standards of our culture instead of God's kingdom. We ought to understand that our lives ought to be testimonies of the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul speaks to this congregation and he exhorts them to adorn the gospel in all things, in the way they believe, in the way that they walk, in the way that they talk, in the way that they trust their very beings to the living God. In the same way, we must be testimonies within our culture, in the way we believe, in the way we walk, in the way we talk, in the way that we entrust our lives to the living God and to no one else. He begins with an exhortation even before his greeting ends. 
In fact, it is there in his greeting as he is identifying himself that he is laying laying an example of exactly what being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ does in regard to promoting the li- our lives to adorn the gospel of God our Savior in all things. He is giving us rich theology that is to be lived out within the context of our lives so that the culture might know and turn to Jesus Christ as Lord. And as we look this morning and see the truth that leads to godliness, we need to see it and understand that we always ought to be considering in the midst of our heart, in the midst of our life, this question. Do those who know us but don't know Jesus want to come to know Jesus because they know us? Do those that know us but don't know Jesus want to come to know Jesus because they know us? Let's take our our copy of God's Word and turn there to Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and let's look and see the truth that leads to godliness. Let's stand in honor of the reading of this, God's holy and inspired Word. And it says there in verses 1 through 4, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness and the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. But at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are sovereign over all things, that you are our creator, our savior, and our sustainer. And Father, that you have given your words of truth to lead us to godliness. Father, that you want to indwell us with faith, but let that faith work itself out into practice so that our world might see our lives and know the wonderful, glorious gospel of Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, let the Holy Spirit come now and illuminate this passage so that we might make application. And Father, that we might go away differently than we came in so that the culture might see and know the true message. Father, of glory and salvation in Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray now that you would speak, Father, for your servants are listening. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening in Jesus' name. Amen. We see within this passage that indeed God's children are to be faithfully devoted to serving Him. And how are we to be faithfully devoted to serving Him? By their commitment to God's sovereignty, God's service, and God's servants. We are to be people who have the foundational principles of a worker for God, a witness for God within the context of our culture by devoting ourselves, committing ourselves to these things, to God's sovereignty in our life, to God's service through our life and to God's servant, servants in encouragement and care. And as we go through this passage today, indeed, we ought to be people who live under God's sovereignty in every area and aspect of our life. We ought to be people who, for, who fulfill God's service in every, with every breath that we breathe. And we ought to be people who exercise care for God's servants 
throughout the course of, and context of our life. As we come this morning, let us begin to understand that God's children are to be faithfully devoted to serving Him by their commitment to God's sovereignty, service, and servants. First of all, there in verse 1, we see a commitment to God's sovereignty. Paul, a bondservant, a slave of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ, he opens and he says, listen, I'm not a man under my own authority. I'm under the authority of the living God. He wants to make sure that you understand that under the authority and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he has picked up his pen and he is writing a message not from his lips, not from his heart to you. He's writing a message from God's lips and God's heart to you. And he's pinning this word and he indeed could have opened in a variety of ways. He could have opened the letter and he could have boasted of his high level of religious training within the Jewish community. He could have boasted of his high scholarly record that he had received among the Jewish elite. His human authorship of most of the New Testament. He could have boasted in that. He could have said, Titus in the church at Crete, I want you to know who I am. I've been a man called up to the third heaven. I could tell you all of these glorious things. But he says, listen, I don't want you to focus on who I am. I want you to focus on the authority that is over me. Paul says, I have committed to the sovereignty of God because I am nothing more than a slave. I am nothing more than a bondservant of the living God. I am in complete, and notice this, complete and willing bondage to God. When Paul talks this way, he doesn't do it under compulsion. He says, listen, I have given myself. I've given my life. I have become and made myself a slave to God so that he might make me a slave to righteousness. He had no life that he called his own. He had no will that he called his own. He had no plans that he called his own. He had no purposes apart from the purposes that God gave him. And the same should be true for you and I, each and every believer in Jesus Christ. That ought to be true of each of us each and every day. See, Paul was under the leadership of God's Holy Spirit as an apostle, as a messenger or ambassador, given a message of authority that is not based on the authority of the uh, is based on the authority of the sender and not the authority of the sendee. Paul says, I'm just a sendee. I'm not the sender. God is my sender. Jesus has given me a message to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth, and I'm going to fulfill it because I am his slave. I'm a slave of God, the one who is supernatural and sovereign creator and sustainer of all of creation. He is indeed an apostle, a messenger of Jesus Christ. So Paul, in that first verse, in that opening, he says, hey, listen, for those of you who are Jews among the congregation there at Crete, I want you to know this. I am under the authority. I am a servant of the living God, hearkening back to those men throughout the Old Testament who would have been called servants of God. And for those of you who are Greek and don't know much about the Old Testament, I want you to know I'm an apostle, I'm, an, I'm a messenger from Jesus Christ the Lord. That's what Paul's saying. That's what he's doing. And we must have that same attitude in ourselves that we indeed are under the sovereignty of God. 
We are under the sovereignty of God. I remember a few years ago, the movie Remember the Titans came out. And uh, as we as we watched it, there was a moment where the team was having a hard time coming together. Everybody was playing for themselves. Everybody was being selfish in their approach to the football and to, towards football. And as they played and they tried to mesh, nothing was going right. And finally, Gary and Julius Gary were two leaders on the team. Gary pulls Julius off to the side and he says, listen. Julius you've got unbelievable potential you could be amazing you could be a superstar and you're giving it nothing you're not wearing you're not doing anything to improve the team and Julius looks and says I'm not wearing myself out for this team why in the world would I want to wear myself out for a team that's not going to work for me Gary says that's the worst attitude I've ever seen Julius looks back and says attitude Reflects leadership, Captain. The reality is for you and I, attitude reflects lordship, Christian. Our attitude in our daily life, whether we are under our own authority or God's authority, reflects who is Lord and King in our life. If we live under our own authority, we are not under the authority of God. Therefore, we don't care about completing the task that He has given us. But listen, God wants us to be slaves of Him. Why? Because He loved us so much, He gave His Son, Jesus Christ, to redeem us and set us free. Indeed, we ought to understand 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 20 defines how we ought to live. We are not our own. We are bought with a price. In 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 18 and 19 it says that you know you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold verse 19 but with precious blood as of the lamb unblemished and spotless the blood of Christ. I am not my own. It is no longer I who lives but who? Christ who lives within me. That's what it means to live under the sovereignty of God. Jesus says to his disciples, go and make disciples. He doesn't go say, get people to sign a card, get people to pray a prayer, get people to make a verbal commitment or pledge. He says, go and make disciples. And we're giving a, given a task to complete church. And if we're not about completing that, guess what? We're not living under the sovereignty of God, are we? We must must do what God says. And we must be committed to God's sovereignty by seeing ourselves not as our own, but as God's prized possession bought in redemption by Jesus Christ. Secondly, not only must we have a commitment to God's sovereignty, but secondly, a commitment to God's service. A commitment to God's service. Look at what he says there in verses, the end of verse 1 and the beginning of verse 2. For the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life. See, Paul goes on to explain what the reality and responsibility of his ministry are because of God's sovereignty in his life. Paul says, here's my aim. Here's my goal. Here's what I want to happen. I want to see saving faith engendered in those that God has chosen. I want to see a sanctification, a a sanctifying truth develop within the context, within the lives of those God has saved. And I want to see eternal hope spring up in the lives of each and every one that names Jesus as Lord. 
His desire is to promote, first of all, a saving faith among those chosen of God. Paul's desire is that those who have been chosen by God will believe and trust in the work of Jesus Christ, in the gospel that changes and and transforms sinners into saints. He wants them to express and exhibit within their lives a true faith, a faith that says, I have surrendered all to Jesus Christ and to Him alone. That's what Paul's desire is. And you know what the reality of your life and my life ought to be? We ought to have the same goal, the same desire that everybody we come into contact with, we want to show them and share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they might see and know and celebrate faith in Christ and deliverance from sin. Indeed, his apostolic teaching is with a view to benefit others as well so that the, the faith that will be expressed and exhibited in their lives will result, uh, lead to godliness. And having believed by faith in the gospel, their lives would be transformed by the truth that is beginning to change and to transform them, to conform them to the image of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I find my existence, I find my significance, not in my ability to accomplish things for myself. My existence, catch this, my significance is not found in serving myself. My existence and significance is found in serving God, really, by serving others. And isn't that true for the Christian life? Isn't that your experience? That the most, the most you grow with God, the close, closest you get to God is not when you stand and look, how can I minister to myself? How can I better myself? How can I make more of myself? How can I get myself more glory and fame and honor here upon this world? But when I say, you know what? I'm serving God. And I'm serving Him by serving others. See, Paul is focused on finding significance through ministering to others. And when we find our significance in the service of God and others so that they might know God and be transformed into a new person by being conformed to the image of Christ, we understand our purpose. We live in the purpose like no other time. Indeed, saving faith and sanctifying truth in the life of others should be one of the top goals of the Christian life. It should be your goal and my goal. It's amazing. You go into the gym and when you go into the gym, there's every difference between the person who shows up to preen and to print themselves for themselves. You know who I'm talking about, don't you? You know, the person that comes in and they lift weights for 10 minutes and then they spend 15 minutes looking in the mirror, flexing a little bit, showing off, making sure that they look good for themselves. And they're rejoicing and celebrating in what they're doing for themselves. Hey, look how good I look. Look what I'm doing for myself. There's every difference between that person that would go into the gym for the purpose of bettering themselves for themselves and the person who would go into the gym because they understand they are preparing for a battle by which they will serve their country. There's a difference. 
And there's a difference between the Christian whose Bible is full of notes because they want to look holy and look good to everybody else. There's a difference between the Bible that is full of notes that has never been shared with anybody outside of themselves and the Christian who would have a Bible full of notes because now he is going to go and share and tell everybody he meets about the glorious God that he serves. We need to be the people not who just come to gym to better themselves, but the people who come for the purpose of preparing to go and to tell others. Amen? In addition to Paul's goal of saving faith and sanctifying truth resulting in the lives of others, Paul also desires that his ministry result in an encouraging and an expectant hope and a sure hope for eternal life. In our culture, we often think of this word hope in a wishy-washy sort of way. Well, maybe North Carolina State will win a game next year. Maybe not. I don't know. Georgia Tech, of course, will win. That is an expectant hope against NC State next year. But the reality for us is just this. The reality that we have to understand is this is not a wishy-washy hope. Oh, I hope mom doesn't find out I ate the last cookie out of the cookie jar. I hope dad doesn't find out I broke the window. I hope nobody finds out that I get a, got a speeding ticket. Teenagers, any of y'all been there? Hope nobody finds out about the fender bender. Guess what? Bad news. They'll find out. That's hope. That's a wishy-washy hope. It may come to pass. It may not come to pass. But that is not what is being said in this passage. The word here is a confident expectation of a patient waiting. It is absolutely amazing. In the morning when I get William up and I take him out of the bed and I lay him down and I change his diaper, I put his pajamas back on and then I set him down on the floor. And you know, it's absolutely amazing. The first thing every morning that that little 17-month-old boy does is he goes and he stands at the refrigerator and he looks and he's looking because he knows his father's about to come behind him and he's going to take a sippy cup he's going to fill it good fill fill it full of good and wholesome milk that he needs he's going to put the top back on the sippy cup and he's going to hand it to him and then he immediately takes that cup pops it in his mouth and walks over and stands there and looks at his high chair because he knows he expects he is confident his dad will provide for his needs. That's the confident hope. That is the certainty. Write it down. If you trust God, he will strengthen you and sustain you. He will give you eternal life, not just earthly life, but eternal life. William does that. And it's amazing. Matthew seven eleven. Jesus says, hey, listen. If you being evil know how to give your kids good gifts, how much greater will your Father in heaven know how to take care of you? Romans chapter 8, we see that indeed we should be people who are longing for the redemption, not just of our souls, but of our bodies. In verse 23 of Romans 8, it says, And not only thus, this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves 
groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as the sons, the redemption of our body. Our eyes are set. We understand that if Jesus Christ has died to redeem us and He is risen again, indeed, because He is risen again, we too will rise again. And so we expect God to come back and to redeem not just our souls, but our bodies. In verses 28 and following, it says, and we know this, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, for those He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And these whom He predestined, He called. And these He called, He justified. And those He justified, He glorified. Do you catch that? Paul's not dead. And he's saying with emphatic certainty that indeed, if Jesus Christ has saved your soul, He will glorify you. Christians, celebrate. That's the good news. I don't have to worry about tomorrow. I don't have to worry about this earthly life because no matter what comes my way, I know redemption is sure and certain. Indeed, as we see this, we understand that even in our suffering, God has ordained it for our good and for His glory, and that ultimately we will taste and experience redemption from all of these things. And so understand, this is what Paul is saying. God, who cannot lie, promised these things long ages ago. Oh, by the way, that word long, that that little phrase, long ages ago, accords to the statement before the world began. God, who promised salvation long before the world began to save the souls and redeem the bodies of those that would repent of sin and place their faith in His Savior. At the right time, God fulfilled this promise concerning you from before the foundations of the world. Isn't it great to know that we serve a God who fulfills His promises? Indeed, some of us know what it is like to expect something, to want something for special occasions. Maybe a birthday is coming up and you go, well, I want to ask mom and dad for a present at just the right time. I don't want to ask them too early because they might do what? Forget. And give me some dumb thing that I don't really want. And I don't want to ask them too late because then they might not have time to get it. I want to ask them at exactly the right time. But understand this passage. Understand the truth of God's Word. Here it says, God made a promise before the beginning of time concerning you. Concerning your salvation. I will save people by the sovereign substitutionary death of Jesus Christ and I will save you. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. We see this played out within the context of that passage when it says this, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from when? From all eternity. Do you get that? Do you see that? Do you celebrate that in your daily life? Is that moving you, motivating you? Is that causing you to stand and to rejoice and to go out into the world and fill it full of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Hey, listen, saint. God redeemed you. He purposed to redeem you. He promised to redeem you before the foundations of the world. And He saw it 
through in sending His Son, Jesus Christ, at the right time to redeem you. And then, not only that, but He put the right preacher, the right witness, the right person to share the gospel in your path so that you might then repent of your sins and receive Jesus Christ by faith in in Him. And then you might know not just earthly life, but eternal life. That's something to stand up and shout about. So why don't we do it more? See, if we have been redeemed, we ought to tell someone about it. We ought to share it with everyone. We ought to commit ourselves to thinking of others more than we think of ourselves, to proclaiming the truth of God's Word, His saving faith to those who don't believe, His sanctifying truth to those who do believe, and the expectant hope to all people so that the gospel might be received by those that He has promised to redeem. We must be people who are committed to God's service. Thirdly, we ought to have a commitment. We ought to have a commitment to God's servants. He closes that passage out there in verse 4. To Titus, my, common, my son in a common faith. My son in a common faith. Grace and peace to you from our Father, from God, our Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ. What a powerful statement. This is the great commission. The gospel being passed from one generation to the next. Understand, Paul says, hey, listen, you're my son in a common faith because it is through my ministry that you receive Jesus Christ. But understand, I didn't leave you languishing there. I didn't leave you behind. I didn't stop there. I said, not only would I be the person that was used of God to be an instrument for your saving faith, but now I'm going to teach you all truth. I'm going to make sure that the truth of God is sanctified in you in such a way that it leads you to walk in godliness so that you then might be useful to the master and you might serve God in all places. Oh, by the way, Titus, I've got a great gig for you. I've got a great job lined up for you. I want you to go to the island of Crete, you know, the fifth largest island there in the Greek, uh, Greek islands. And I want you to go among those people about whom it is said they are all what? Liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, and I want you to plant a church. Titus, get going, bud. Thanks, but no thanks. Plan B? Could I go somewhere else? Could I minister to some, some other people? I mean, I, I, I don't really like this, Paul. This doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun. And what is it that Paul says? Titus, grace and peace be to you. What a wonderful word from our great God through his servant Paul, through his mouthpiece Paul, to encourage the servants in his kingdom. Grace and peace, the unmerited favor of God that flows to us to redeem us from our sins so that we are no longer under the judicial judgment of God's wrath received upon our sin. But now we are experiencing peace with God because the the. Uh, wrath of God that was reserved for our sin has been laid fully and finally upon Jesus Christ and now we're redeemed now we can stand before him and we can be at peace with our creator and our savior through the gospel of Jesus Christ grace and peace be to you it's amazing 
This young man, Titus, there's a few things said about him, not much mentioned outside of Galatians and then in 2 Corinthians. But you know, we find him in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and chapter 8 continually being a comforter. He's not really a speaker. He's not out front. He's not leading the charge in the midst of his culture and community. And he's not, he's not really in the forefront of the church. He's standing beside Paul and he's comforting Paul. He's comforting the churches. He's ministering to all those who need help and what a statement that this young man would be so faithful and devoted to God to his sovereignty to his service and to his servants that God would then prepare him and call him out to step forward and to lead his church what an amazing statement in the midst of those moments for Paul to look and say grace and peace to you because I've set you in a place so that you might minister to the church of the living God And remember, grace and peace from God is what's going to strengthen you and sustain you. You know, there was a man, William Pitt writes of, within the American Revolution. He was a man of ministry. He was a man that was faithful in the, in the service of the country as it was being formed and developed. And this man was named Dundas. And William Pitt had these words to say about Dundas. He said, Dundas is no orator. He is not even a speaker. But he will go out with you in any weather. Dundas isn't an orator. He isn't even a speaker. But he will go out with you in any weather. Church, you know what we need to be? We need to be like Dundas. I'm not a speaker, Pastor. I can't stand up and teach. I can't do this. I can't do that. That's okay. Will you go out for the cause of Christ in any weather? Will you stand up and go and minister in your community? Will you be faithful in your workplace? Will you be faithful, young men and women, in your schools? Will you be faithful in the context of our culture? Let me ask you this morning. There are only two types of people here. There are those who have tasted and received the grace and peace of God that comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ and those who have not. And I want to ask you this morning, have you tasted and received the grace and the peace of God that comes into your life? Because he has a purpose. He wants to use you for the furtherance of his kingdom. But the question is, in a real and personal way right now, have you surrendered to him? And if you surrendered to him, let me ask you, Are you faithful in living under his sovereignty? Are you faithful in living in his servants? Are you faithful in caring for and encouraging his servants? Father, as we come to a close of this time together, we pray that you would lead us and guide us to only trust him. Father, to only trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation, to only trust in you to strengthen us and sustain us in the midst of a world that presses in on us. Father, we know and understand that it is only through your grace and through your peace that we are able to live out a testimony that shows the transformational power of the gospel. And Lord, I pray this morning that if there is someone who does not know the transformational power of the of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that this morning they would step out, they would come down and they would surrender their heart, surrender their lives, surrender their all to Jesus as Lord. Father, you say that today is the day of salvation and we truly believe that anyone who comes and confesses that they are a sinner and they need your son Jesus Christ to be their savior, they 
will be saved. But Father, we ask now that those of us who are truly saved would be living in it, walking in it, testifying of the truth. Father, that we would be like Dundas. We may not be an orator. We may not even be a speaker. But Father, we are those who are willing to go out in any weather for the cause of Christ because He has given Himself fully and finally for us. Lord, we pray these things now. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing together uh, in this time.